Slow Burn Media and Bill Huffman present Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. You have to know, you have to, to feel what your son felt and, and to think why and, and how, what, what led up to this. Just, it's horrible. I mean, the name Malat, I mean, the fact that the murder is committed in, Bang- in Belangelo State Forest, I mean, this immediately uh, makes one's flesh creep. Malat was also found guilty of abducting an eighth backpacker, the one who got away, Englishman Paul Unwins. Without him, Malat might still be at large, still killing. It's only through his evidence were police able to pinpoint Malat as a murderer. Onions, you see, had gone perilously close to being another victim, and the experience had haunted him. If horror has a human face, then its name is Ivan Robert Mullett. Australia's worst serial killer was found guilty yesterday of murdering seven backpackers. He'd go, I've heard about, we'd heard about his uncle, we'd heard his surname that many times. Like, he did brag about it, true? Yeah. Like, he, he looked up to his uncle and he'd made that clear. Ivan Robert Marco Mullett, Australia's own Ivan the Terrible. This is the face of a serial killer. Nothing can get them back. Nothing. A killer with the dead eyes of a shark and the ferocity to match. Brutal, cunning, merciless, predatory. His name alone synonymous with death and now dead himself. I don't think you get much worse than a cold-blooded killer. It was the biggest murder story I've known in the last 40 years. Malat's murderous rampage changed perceptions of the friendly country. The murder of seven backpackers, including two British girls. If horror has a human face, then its name is Ivan Robert Malat. Australia's worst serial killer was found guilty yesterday of murdering seven backpackers. He died alone in a barren prison cell, an outcome many believed Ivan Malat deserved when he was convicted 23 years ago. Australia's most notorious serial killer lost his battle with cancer in the early hours of this morning in Sydney's Long Bay Prison Hospital. He was 74, serving life for the brutal murders of seven young backpackers. Hello and welcome to episode 75 of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media production. On this week's show, I will be talking with the hosts of the Evidence Locker podcast about a case down under, the Ivan Milat backpack killer case. If you are unfamiliar with this case, it is definitely worth looking up, but Sonia and Noel really know their stuff. And I would be doing a disservice to the story by continuing on. So let's jump into my conversation with Sonia and Noel from the Evidence Locker podcast. This week on my passion case, I am very lucky to be joined by the folks over at Evidence Locker from the other side of the world in Australia. Welcome to my passion case. Thank you. Thank you. We're lucky to be here. <laughs> well, I'm lucky to have you. Go ahead and uh, introduce yourselves. Now, I'm Noel Vinson, the host of The Evidence Locker. And I'm Sonia Lo. I'm the producer and creator of The Evidence Locker. Very cool. Now, what is it that got you guys into the uh, podcasting game? Sonia, I'll let you lead with, uh, with this one. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this is... Uh, I, I've always 
been a true crime junkie. I've loved watching it on end. My husband kept telling me, oh, can you maybe do something with <laughs> your strange hobby? Because I'm a script writer by trade. I wrote for a soap opera for many years. And um, I just needed to keep on writing. And yeah, I guess I took my job and made it my hobby. And I do the research in the scripts. And Noel is my good friend. And you can tell a bit more about how I dragged you in, Noel. Uh, well, essentially, um, we knew each other um, in Sydney. Um, and we would make films together. Um, and I like to pride myself on that I made Sonia direct a horror film. <laughs> in my daughter's uh, bedroom. In her daughter's bedroom. <laughs> um, okay. And, you know, from there, it's just, um, we kept, you know, um, just sort of getting each other's backs with creative endeavors and, and things like that. And as life would have it, Sonia and her family moved to the Southern Highlands of Australia and um, kept the creativity going, started the evidence locker. Um, she told me that she was doing a podcast and she would love it if I would, you know, um, host it. And I was like, yeah, of course, no problem. And yeah, that first, that first episode definitely uh, taught me what I was in for because it was a Swedish case. And I realized, okay, so this is going to start um, becoming a little bit tough with certain pronunciations and things. But she bared with me and she teaches me and I learn from doing these podcasts more than I would ever imagine to learn. So it's an awesome part. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, you guys have quite the interesting uh, connection. So what writing for a soap opera, that must have been uh, pretty wild. Yeah, that, uh, that sort of helps you to bring the drama, I suppose, and sometimes a bit of tongue-in-cheek comedy. <laughs> you got to have a little yeah. bit of sense of humor in some of this stuff. Yeah, you do. Um, yeah, to, to help you as a sort of coping mechanism with the dark stories that we read. But um, yeah, the case we, we're talking about today, it's, I'm from South Africa originally, and Noel, as you can tell, is from the States. So we're both not native Australians, and this isn't the case that we knew about. Uh, it's okay. not one that came on our radars in the countries we lived. So when we came here, it was about 2011, I think, when I heard about Milat for the first time. It was a documentary on Crime and Investigation Australia. And it, it was just quite horrific that I hadn't heard of him because I do like listening to all things true crime. And, yeah, it sparked an interest. And for yeah. me, um, I was just going to say that because I was a horror movie fan, I knew the movie Wolf Creek. And in researching Wolf Creek, you find that some of it was based on Ivan Millette. So that's how that came onto my radar. But I really didn't know the details and, and, and deep dive into anything until uh, being in Australia and, and hearing more about it. Because it is, you know, not to, to uh, glamorize it, but it is like the premier Australian case, I believe. Yeah, with that being said, and you being from the States, is it like a Bundy type of case where he, it's like famous on that level? Yeah, in, in Australia, it would be. Um, you know, there are their fair share of killers here, but Ivan Milat definitely takes the cake. And I mean, he was, he was definitely a um, special dude, you know, <laughs> just the background and all that good psychoanalysis that goes into those kinds of things. Yeah, and so let, I, as far as the case goes, um, you know, we are talking about Ivan Milat. It's Milat, right? Milat. Milat. And... Now, he is famous to a degree in the States. He's got a name. You know, he's, he's the backpack murderer. And I've definitely listened to a few, more than a few podcasts on his case. Could you give the listeners a little bit of a background on 
what brought him into the world of, uh, I guess, uh, deviancy? You go with this one, Sonia, <laughs> and then I'll chime in. Okay. Um, yes, um, Milad, Ivan Milad was from a very large family. He, um, it was a migrant family, like many Australian families. Uh, he had, uh, there were 14 children, and they lived just outside of Sydney in, um, on a s- small farm. All the kids were involved in keeping the house and going to school. They sort of raised themselves in a lot of chaos. They were very tight-knit. Very tight-knit. They got into a lot of trouble, but if only one got into trouble, that's the one that took the fall for the rest. So, so they've they, always had this band of brothers. And you said there were 14 of them? 14 children. Yeah. 14. Wow. And, <laughs> and, they ra- and you said they basically raised themselves? Yeah, the mother was and father. The father was quite violent, uh, alcoholic, an alcoholic, immigrant from uh, East Bloc, Croatia. Um, and the the mother they met in Australia. Uh, so I I just think it's she was quite the matriarch, and even to the end, uh, she was the matriarch. But because there were so many of them, they were they were expected to help out in raising the little ones and things like that. Like, where did he fall as far as the hierarchy of the family went? Well, I, I couldn't tell you what number child he was, but what comes across in research is that he, I guess he was the most charismatic one. Uh, he was the one who whatever he wanted, he would get. So um, there was a little bit of a, um, a little bit of beef that came from the fact that uh, Ivan, um, you know, he, he wanted to, uh, well, he was interested in one of his brother Boris's wife. So they had an affair, right? And then um, a child came and Boris raised it his own, but the family sort of knew who the real father was. So that sort of put Boris at odds with Ivan for the rest of their relationship. And then, you know, he, he, he also dated or had an affair with the girlfriend of another brother. He um, had an affair with his cousin's um, girlfriend. So he, there was something about him that, that these women gravitated to. And I think it was... I think they say he was like, there was something about power that he had. But even within all that, it was still very tight knit. And he was still sort of a protector of that whole brotherhood. He was fifth in the picking order, by fifth. the way. He was a fifth. Okay, so he was kind of like right in the middle. Yeah. Now, that sounds like something right out of a soap opera. <laughs> <laughs> One might want to say, yeah. So I think um, you want to be careful to use the word hillbilly, but I mean, that was sort of the vibe, right? It was your brothers, your sisters, your cousin. Um, it was very incestuous, and the, uh, there was also a big implication. Like Later on, people believed that he had an incestuous affair with his sister, Shirley. And she has even been pinned to have been involved in many of the murders. Accessory to the murders, yeah. yeah. Really? Now, I was always under the impression, I guess we are kind of jumping ahead there, but I was, I, th- I guess I was under the impression that he had acted alone, but yeah, it's, that's... it's never been proven. It's only a speculation. Wow. Okay. Yeah. No and one I... was ever charged. The thing, so yeah, maybe to rewind a little bit. So he was from this large family and they were very violent. They had guns, they shot, um, animals and hunt this but they 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 shot anything and everything they could find targets they 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 really loved their guns they would have barbecues you know and 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 it was that very like this is what we do this is what normalcy probably is to that particular family 
yeah, and they, they would fight and then the mother would get involved and pull them apart and that sort of thing. Yeah, if um, I may, uh, I'm sorry, Sonia, just on that, that, that bit where um, how Ivan had the affair with uh, Marilyn, who was Boris's wife. Boris, actually, there was a moment where Boris um, attempted to kill him, spurned on by Stephen, the father. Like Stephen said, um, oh, he disrespected you like that. He disgraced you. Um, he needs to die in regards to Ivan but I can't ask you to do it because he's my son. And that was sort of the words that he had said. Boris took that upon himself to kill his brother in an act of revenge. Um, and he ain't at a family barbecue. He aimed a gun at his brother, Ivan, but his mother, Margaret, kept getting in the way of Ivan. And nothing ever came of that. It's just deep in their, you know, their, their anger towards one another, at least Boris is towards Ivan. Ivan probably just couldn't really care less the way he was, you know? Uh. Yeah, so that, that was the <laughs> dynamic. That was the sort of dynamic in the household. Yeah, he deserves to die. I can't tell you to kill him. Try to kill him. And then the mother, literally, she physically um, would stand up, but not say, don't shoot your brother. <laughs> she would literally dish food into their plates. Every time he pulled the gun, the mother would stand up and stand in between. So, um, yeah, that, that was... So when's yeah, this movie coming out? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, funny you say that. There's been um, a few. So, <laughs> oh, really? Okay. And yeah. and Noel has worked with the actor who portrayed Malat. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, give it a plug. Come on. <laughs> oh well, it's a, it's a proof of concept. It's a short film called Dusters. It was uh, finished literally um, two weeks ago. Oh wow! So it just it'll hopefully make some rounds in the. Um, in the film festival world, you know, and um, yeah, uh, lucky enough to um, cast the insane character as the lovely gentleman who played the insane Ivan Millette. So yeah, definitely lucked out with that. And it's just, you know, it's just ironic how that sometimes happens. <laughs> so he's growing up in this wild household of just rambunctious children and just lawless children, it sounds like, and a mother who's not quite willing to tell the children not to kill the other children. <laughs> not an enabler per se. <laughs> I mean, I mean just, I'm just, I'm just laying it out there. This is getting a little weird. We haven't even gotten to the weird part yet. So, all right. So what age is it that he, let's say heads off on his own or starts into his world of, I guess, seedier crimes that are outside of the family. So what, what you need to know about Milat is there, there's so much speculation about exactly when he started and the exact scale or the amount of people that he actually did kill. Um, in the end, it was only seven. That uh, He's only ever been um, convicted of seven murders, but uh, not that that's only. Seven lives are many, uh, but it is believed that it is many, many more. He worked on the roads. He was um, a, on Trucker? road construction. It, okay. it, like, like filling potholes, you know, things like that. Just uh, painting lines, the kind of um, thing yeah. that the road services do. Yeah. Yeah, I was in college. I painted. Uh, I, was, I was the guy that put the cones on the painted lines in the service department. <laughs> in I, good company. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, great. I uh, probably worked with one. <laughs> <laughs> it does give you a good cover when you think about it like <laughs> that's actually ironic because the first case that i went looking into that is the first 
those are the first apartments I started looking into as far as who there. was there and who wasn't there on the day that the crime actually took place. Oh, no. <laughs> well, there you that, go. Not to paint everybody with a broad stroke. That is <laughs> yeah. not what I'm trying to do by any stretch. <laughs> so he's working on the roads. So he's kind of like, so he's basically, he's, everywhere. he's all over the place. So it, it needs, it just needs to be said that he, he always had brushes with the law. The whole family had, um, with thefts and, um, break-ins oh. and so he stole a car and he did, he went to jail for two years when he was in his late teens. So he, um, He's always sort of had the criminal side to him, of which many people speculate many of those crimes were committed by one of the brothers and the police just took the one that said, okay, yeah, I did it. And that's the thing is it wasn't one bad egg. It was sort of a rotten carton, you know, I mean, not to, not to generalize it in that way, but yeah, he had brothers who were also just as violent. They would always take the fall for each other. And that's what made it difficult, too, because even they were operating under different names. You know, like there was a few who worked for for Borel, which uh, if I am correct in saying Borel is a company that that was who who was doing um, the roads. Yes, Sonia? Uh, It says, yeah, more of an engineering factory. That's more on that part of it. But I think they do make. Well, because Richard Millat, yeah, Richard Millat worked there, but Richard Millat went under the name Paul Miller, and Paul Miller was a name that was tossed to the police uh, when they were doing investigations once, you know, bodies were coming up and being found and things like that. And, you know, he worked with his brother, Alex Millat, and then Alex Millat was questioned. And because of this whole sort of web that they would spin and, you know, basically try to spin any any um, any eyes away from themselves as Malats. So it was very hot. I just, it, I'm, just I'm just just blown away by the the willingness of the brothers to just take the fall for one another and just be like, ah, yeah, that was me. That <laughs> yeah, right. I look like the most probable suspect. Yeah, why not? Say it's me. I'll go to jail for a couple of months. I guess right, blood so... is thicker than water. No pun intended. <laughs> yeah, and it really, it really, it was the case with the Malats. It's really blood thicker than water. Um, even even to the end. So he was in his late 20s. It was 1971, was the first case when he was actually um, suspected of kidnapping h- hitchhikers in New South Wales. Um, it was two women that came forward, and they said uh, he had given them a ride, and then um, that he pulled over and he threatened to rape them. Uh, the one got away and the one didn't. Yes. He did rape her. Uh, he did not kill them. So, I mean, in those days, in 1971, it, it was very hard for the vi- victim of sexual assault to come forward. But those two girls did. They were only 18 years old. They were Australian backpackers. He somehow got off. He was found not guilty. Oh, so they actually took him to trial and everything. They took him to trial and everything. But he did get off. After which he went to New Zealand and spent some time in New Zealand. So... Heaven knows what happened over there across the pond. Right. He spent a whole year in New Zealand and then he came back to Australia. Uh, and then his next arrest was uh, for um, another robbery and things. Uh, and he was a truck driver for a while. Well, that would just fall. That would fall right into line with all the serial killers that are the majority <laughs> of serial killers. I mean, they have a whole initiative here in the, U.S. you know the FBI task force they've got a highway serial killer initiative because there's so many of them that are connected to that type of crime because it's just one of those jobs that's so conducive to 
one, you're by yourself, and two, you can pretty much come and go as you please. Well, if you think in Australia, too, how big Australia is as a country, right? And then within how big Australia is, how empty it actually is. Like, you got probably one of the biggest land masses with the smallest population. The population of LA is like 10 times bigger than the population of entire entirety of Australia. So if you are working on these roads, you have, you know, you, you can do anything. You can get away with anything. Nobody's going to know where to find it. You know, it's, it's, it's kind it, of it is. And, and that, that is why people also hitchhike because there aren't necessarily always buses or trains going to specific scenic places where backpackers like to go. I think obviously after Milat backpacking changed in Australia somewhat and people stick to the main routes. <laughs> but, <laughs> the social consciousness has changed for sure when it, yeah. after all that. But I mean, his, his main time of operation began really in the early 90s. And when you say that, you're talking about, right, Sonia, the seven that we know about. The right? seven that we know about. So you're saying uh, that he could have been committing crimes basically from the 70s up until 90 and or 91 when the first known victim is actually known. Put it to you this way. Fast forward a little bit. So Malad has recently died, right? Right. And everybody was expecting him to come clean about everything he did and reveal how much people he actually killed and where they were. He never did. So the whole thing is, yeah, there's still probably could be in the 10s, 20s, you know, even more, who really knows if that was his, you know, time of operation. But nobody will ever know now. Um, never know. The, and the grave without saying, yeah. Even, um, even one of his brothers said, was it Alex that said in an interview? I think, or was, it, was, I think it was Boris. Boris is the one who flies the flag anti-Ivan, yeah. And then, yeah, he, he said on Australian television, he said, you don't know the extent of exactly how many it was. It's it's a tremendous amount, um, which denotes he probably knows more than he's saying, but um, he's a millet. <laughs> and, and yeah. He probably would talk, tell the truth to them and they would keep, you know, bite their tongues or whatever, or, or maybe even pat them on the back. Who knows? Yeah, they kind of, it sounds like they would kind of take that one and either, I mean, it sounds like if he was committing crime, because nobody just wakes up one day and, because how old was he in 91? So he was born in 44. So, so yeah, nobody starts killing it at 45. No. No, it's something that, that's always been in you somehow. And I think there's a part of him that's the narcissistic side of, of serial killer personalities, because he is quite narcissistic. And the kind of things that you do and the kind of, uh, you know, torment that you you apply to other people, there is a narcissistic value. It's a power surge, you know? And, and I think out of all the family, he was the one who had that. So whether he was torturing, torturing rats as a kid, we'll, we'll never know. But it's got to come from somewhere. And it's got to be about a lack of respect for the law as well because they did not respect the law. Yeah, it sounds like they live in a lawless, as like I said before, like a lawless sort of household and the parents didn't obviously hold them accountable for anything and like you said before (laughs) boris is carrying the flag of you know anti-ivan well yeah boris is also the one that was going to kill him right (laughs) yeah (laughs) and all because of the affair so god you know (laughs) yeah it is i mean the likelihood is very clear that he yeah as you say bill it it, he won't wouldn't have just have had the incident in 1971 and picked up 20 years later yeah like that's slim Slim and none. Hey, it was like, no, but so, so when was the first? So when was the first murder victim? 
like uh, actually attributed chronologically or or discovery well i guess we'll start with discovery so that was 1992 they in Belangla state forest in Belangla state forest which um it's nearby my house and i've actually taken a drive through to it on our facebook page there's a little video of the drive through it it's a very scary place it's so spooky it's um windy roads and we actually got lost we had google maps apple maps our car navigation and we got lost we couldn't find our way out (laughs) it was really a very scary situation it was a january day it was rainy and grim and dark and people think of australia as this sunny dry place kangaroos Um, Blanglo and the area in the Southern Highlands, it's a cooler climate. And it is, although it does get quite hot, you do get your um, very hot, sunny, hot summer days. But it, it can get quite misty and gloomy and rainy. I think it's fair to note too, Sonia, that just the name Blanglo in Australia sort of inspires a feeling of dread. There's just, I, I, it, it attaches to it, you know. Even you saying it now makes me want to vomit. And Noel's been wanting me to drive him around there. and um, You know, morbid fascination and curiosity, as, as we all have. <laughs> uh, I get it. I get it. Anybody listening, they get it. <laughs> you know, first time I went to New York, I had to go to Amityville. Just is what it is. So, um, and I'm still expecting her to take me to Blangalo one of these days. <laughs> we'll keep you posted. But, uh, yeah, so that uh, school kids actually still go on camp there and everything. I. Don't know if I'd be happy sending my kids to go camp in Belanglo. Um They used to do ghost tours, but then they stopped doing that because it was disrespectful it was to the victims. So, but they're still sent. They're trying to build a better reputation about it. But I just, I think it's a losing battle personally. But to carry on with the story, in um, 1992, they found the first bodies. It was in um, September of 1992. The first uh, um, victims that were found were Joanne Walters and Caroline Clark. They were um, girls from the UK that were backpacking and um, they had gone missing and their families were looking for them. And it, it, it's also just important to note, I mean, everyone knows in the 90s, no one had cell phones and that sort of thing. But just to take a minute and think how scary that is to be a parent at the other side of the world and your, your child's not in communication with you. Where do you even start looking for them? And that's what these parents were faced with. They made the journey to Australia. They, they literally drove up and down any highway between the cities, just based on what the girls said. They they thought that they were going to get a job on a strawberry f- uh, farm. And you look at all the different routes and the family were driving and just desperately, families were driving and they, they were de- desperately looking for them. And there was just no answer. And then yeah, Joanne Walters, they, they were found the same crime scene. It was in this uh, forest with a fire pit and it, it looked like someone had camped there overnight. And it was just a, sorry. It was like, it was like somebody who was running, who went on a run or something like that, who came across it. It was a runner, yeah. yeah. It was two runners. Uh, they said they were orienteering. That's right. And in researching this case, I learned what orienteering was. I was going to ask. So um, <laughs> I, was I just don't ask. orienteering. <laughs> oh, yeah. Apparently, that's when you get lost in, a, in the woods and find your way out. On purpose? <laughs> in, in simple terms. Yeah, it's Calorie burner, that one. <laughs> it, I, apparently it's sort of like a military 
uh, exercise where you practice to to orientate yourself in a unknown location. So uh, people did that as a hobby. You know, <laughs> it lost in Belangelo. Uh, I don't think they would do that anymore. But um, yeah, and then find your way out looking at I don't know this. Uh, position of the sun and getting your direction that way and get yourself out. But that's what brought them to to the discovery. And I guess we can say, well, you know, thank God for, for them doing what they were doing because who knows how much longer it would have taken had they not been, you know, in that practice. Absolutely. And they were, they were, um, the bodies were identified with dental records. Um, and so at that so how- point they thought it wasn't a singular incident. And how long had they been missing at that point, but when the bodies were actually discovered? I think it was something like, it was a couple of months. So yeah, they, they were an interesting case because they weren't missing for that long, and then they were found. But they happened just to be the first bodies. Right. Yeah. Not necessarily uh, the first victims. No, they weren't the first victims. Because she was reported missing in 1992, the same year. So. Yes. I think they went missing the January of that year, and they were found the September. Yeah, that would be a horrible feeling to be a parent and to have that. Well, and just in another country the whole uh, the whole time, you know, it's so far away, not even in your own backyard. Yeah, they they went missing in April, and they were f- discovered in September. And reported missing in June. Yes. Yeah. So when you think about it, if they went missing in April. And reported in June, how many months of that is like not hearing from them? Like, like the parents probably think, oh, well, we just, you know, we're, we're assuming the better. Maybe they're just, you know, having fun or what have you. But after, you know, three months or whatever, like two months. Yeah. And what was a, um, another element is the families didn't know each other because they didn't travel together from England. They were both from England, but they met in a backpackers in King's Cross in Australia. And that's sort of where he would prey on a lot of these these backpackers, and and then you know give them a ride on the road to Melbourne. So it was sort of the his his ETA. He would meet them outside a train station or whatever, and say, "Well, he was heading down the highway towards Melbourne. Could he give them a ride somewhere?" And he was, by all accounts, apparently quite charming. And um, yeah, that's all reports that say he was charismatic. He was charismatic. Uh, people didn't feel uneasy with him. And he would have a conversation with them in the car um, to figure out if they were really alone, if they had family around, if they um, had any, um, he would sort of do a a bit of a risk assessment, I suppose, because uh, the one guy that, um, one that got out alive, Paul Onion, he said, he asked him if he had any military training uh, Paul was also um, English, and Paul said yeah, he had spent some time in the military, but then he wanted to know exactly sort of what his capabilities were in terms of combat. <laughs> so, you know, all in a friendly conversation. Yeah, red, <laughs> red flags, red flags. <laughs> hey, how well are you able to defend yourself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's say against Australia's worst serial killer, for instance. Well, well you know what? And then he, he says um, with Paul Onion, so he stopped the car after all this you know, interrogation, and said that he was like he was looking for cassettes, right? He was just yeah. going to get some cassettes so they could listen to music. And then Onions noticed that he had cassettes right there in the dash. So that was sort of his. He just, I think, had the, the underlying feeling, okay, something's up. And as soon as he went, got out of the car, Millette got out of the car. Onions just took off and ran into the forest. 
and hid. Oh, no, he ran in, onto the highway. Actually. Onto the highway. Okay. Yeah, he I'm ran sorry. in front of a car, and thankfully the a person didn't run him over. It stopped and took him to I think it was Barrel. But did Malat aim like he had his gun out too at this point, right? He was trying to shoot at Paul. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. He, he was shooting, firing at him on the on the highway in front of so in the, front of people. Yes. So they reported this to police. That report went missing, as reports do. Apparently, uh, you have a madman with a gun who almost uh, kidnapped and murdered someone. But yeah, let's not put this on the priority. Uh, report for the day. Maybe let's see if someone's chicken got stolen. You know what? If I could just say, doing these episodes, doing the research and reading, and and you find out just how sometimes law enforcement is either just bumbling and just just you know like stupid, or they just don't care. It's it's interesting how many times that comes into play when you read about these cases. Yeah, and well, I think. Yeah. I was going to say that they also get narrow-minded too. Or there's like they can get focused on one particular, you know, idea, and then everything else just falls to the wayside. And then yeah. twenty years go by, and you're like, "Oh shit, we didn't think about that when we should have been." It's like, how obvious was it? Was it now? How come that wasn't obvious then? And I don't think it's because we have better technology now. It's almost just like you didn't you didn't put that. You didn't connect A to B. Well, sometimes it is the power of hindsight, but I also think, um, sadly, a young, healthy man who escaped from a bad situation is a non-event. Yeah. Especially in the 90s. Uh, you should have defended yourself, or you could have. You, 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 I, I've got a bit of a, an issue with how men are helped in bad situations, because uh, Everyone should deserve the same kind of attention or help, whether it's a male or a female. I mean, you had no chance against Milat and his gun. And I think, I don't I, think not, if, you're, if you're Dwayne Johnson, you wouldn't have had a chance against him because he was so ruthless. Oh, and the games that he would play. I, and I think there's just something to say about the, the way men are looked at in this country in particular. Yeah. Um, if you can't hold your own, then... That's not anybody's fault but your own, you know, that, that sort of outlook. Just careful there, no, we don't want to get... No, 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 I'm not saying that, but there's, but there, you know, and that, that could be, that could be a, a, not a blanket statement, but it could be said about just a toxic masculinity, if you will, you know, and that is a real thing. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, be, be a man's man, defend yourself, what's your problem? And that, that sort of thing. You can edit but, that out, right, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> no, that, no, that part, well, you know, to be honest with you, that is ab- absolutely, that is an issue. And that it's not just an issue in your country. It's an issue in, in all countries, I th- or at least in, in the States. I can, I can guarantee you it's an issue here because if you ask for help for something or if you need, you know, let's say mental health assistance there's a stigma that goes along with it and it's just like nobody seems to understand that the hardest thing to do is to ask for help and then to have somebody judge you for asking for help or for not being able to deal with it yourself or be a man or you know pull up your bootstraps it's just there there is such a toxicity that goes along with that yeah and it's it's unnecessary and it's yeah let, let's not I get very angry. <laughs> but it is definitely yeah. sense what you're saying. And I, I do agree with that. It, it, and, you know, in Paul Onion's defense, thank God, because he was the one who was able to start shedding a little bit more light onto things by talking to the police. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. He he was the only witness because he was the one that got away that could explain what went on inside the car. So uh, what he would then typically do, there was an, after Paul Onions came out, more witnesses came out, females that said that they were hitchhiking, they were picked up by this guy. He went onto a rural road and said, oh, it's a shortcut. And the minute he did that, they felt uneasy. And he would always stop the car, right? And and like, don't stop the car, get out with some sort of reason why he was getting out just so he can bring his gun. So he can bring his gun. And then, I mean, because then they stopped. Uh, he, there was a story of an attempted rape and the two girls actually managed to get away from him and they ran away too. So Paul wasn't the only one who got away. And they went to the nearest farmhouse they could find and they also, uh, but they didn't report it. They just, they were shaken up and they just went on their way. They were heading to Canberra, I believe. But um, after Paul Onions came out, they said, well, hang on. It's the same story as we had. Just from the locations, the various um, bodies were found in Belangelo. What they could figure out is Mulat would pick his victims up. Promise says he has a sort of shortcut. He's local to the area. Go into Belangelo Forest, which is a maze. It's so, if, even if he dropped you there, you wouldn't have found your way home. If they were a couple, he would... Disable the strongest one. Which came from the interrogations. He would find that out. and They actually found that through um, the composition of some of the crime scenes for, with forensics. So like in um, Gabor, Gabor Neugebauer and Anja Hapschit, they were boyfriend and girlfriend from Germany. And uh, Gabor, the male, um, he actually severed his spine. So he was paralyzed. Yeah, but alive. But alive. So he did this with more than one of his um, the victim situations. He'd take the stronger one, disable them, but kept them alive so they could watch the murder of the other one. The other one would be then raped and placed up against a tree and he would do target practice by shooting and seeing how many targets would hit and they were able to it was rough for them to figure that out because it, it just it doesn't sound like someone would do that <laughs> but he um they picked up from all the shell casings they picked up they they figured this guy was actually target shooting on a person yeah having fun that was having the thing fun. that we were saying it was more of yeah it was like a it's like a leisurely day out if you will you know yeah. and, and uh, after mainly- he killed them but this is this is when he hit incapacitated the stronger person. Oh, um, okay. uh, because yeah, if you read about some of the descriptions, like you know, um, one of the victims had like fourteen stab wounds, and that was just for incapacitating. The second person, if it wasn't a pair, then would be killed, but almost taunted before that person got killed. And the other person, the partner, would watch before he ultimately or she ultimately met her fate. So it was it definitely imbibed him with power. You know, that was definitely the case with that. So, so yeah, he, he stabbed them in the back to... to Literally. Put, yeah, he stabbed them. And then he also shot. And I think that's for a long time why they felt that there were two 
um, perpetrators because it, um, it was two different methods and, and they just felt maybe one of the brothers did the stabbing and the one did the shooting, but that could never be proven. And one police officer said, yeah, well, that is Ivan Milad. He is, he doesn't care how he did it. Knife, gun, he was just, he saw people as animals that he was hunting and slaughtering and he didn't care which method, which, whichever one worked best at that given moment. I mean, this is a horror movie. This is absolutely, this is horrifying. I mean, to think what these victims went through before they actually died, the ones that were incapacitated. It's That is the cruelest thing of it all. And the fact that he just, um, he took his time. He was, he knew the forest so well and he knew no one would walk stumble across them in the middle of the night no one goes into that forest and looking on those roads he knows where in the forest he can take them you know he he mm. he probably has it all mapped out and and even it's it's quite dense so if he found his spot and it's deep in there and if there was someone let's say on an off-road motorbike or something he'd hear them come for miles so he'd know how to bunker down and hide or something but he, he kept those victims there for hours at end. Yeah, I was going to ask you how long those he kept the victims alive for, if he kept them alive for more than a day or if he killed them from research what I From the research that I um, could find, it, a lot of them were found many months after. So it, it was only skeletal remains. So they couldn't say exactly how long they, they were tortured for. But it, I, I think it was more a matter of hours than days necessarily. Yeah. He would have to get back home. He, 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 you know, he would go back home after this and it would just be sort of, oh, Ivan's back and we're back to our normal familial habits. Yeah. Did, did Ivan have a family at this point? No, he never did marry, but his sister Shirley lived with him. And that's um, what the... So it was said that they had the incestuous affair. But he was um, with Shalinder too, right? Um, that was his actual funny. girlfriend, um, which is just nothing crazy, but he was quite xenophobic and he would, you know, say things about different races of people, according to some of the um, victims. I think Paul Onions is the one who really hit that one home. But, you know, and then he married, or not married, but then he was very committed once he got uh, together with Shalinder, who mm-hmm. was an Indian-born Australian, Yeah. Yeah. So, and he was, he had, he was a, a neat freak. That's they right. He used to wash his car. It was always spotless. It looked brand new. Um, he's. Okay. I found this on the web for his to wash his car. <laughs> okay. So we got a new person. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Siri. <laughs> and this show is sponsored by Apple. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, he was a neat freak, and um, he's he had a shed on the on his property, and that is a, a, where the police eventually found some of the Trophy evidence. It was like rings hidden in the in the attic, almost of the shed. It was there was a ceiling, and it was in the ceiling. And they also found, I think, it was Simone Schmidl's backpack in one of That's in right. the guest room. Uh, Shirley came forward and said, no, it's her backpack. wasn't. Complicit. Um, <laughs> no, it's... Shirley had never been to Germany and uh, this backpack was purchased in Germany. It, it, it just, yeah, she, she, she pulled a millet. Yeah, it was me. It's mine. I got it. <laughs> so, okay. So now we have 
Paul Onions has gotten away. We have two murder victims that have been found. So who who happens to be the next lucky person to cross his path or unlucky Uh, person, I should say. In um, he didn't he didn't murder anybody during the investigation. Yeah, then he Uh, stopped. It was sort of like when the bodies were being found, there was no more. So Hmm. I guess the most recent one. The most recent bodies that were found was was it um, Deborah Everest and and James Gibson? No, so, they were third. They were third and fourth. So they were, I think, the only Australian ones. They were traveling from. Um, they were from Melbourne. They had been up to Sydney for New Year's Eve, and they were hitchhiking their way back down to Melbourne. And the plan was to stop off at a music festival, and they had never made it home. So yeah, they were just nineteen years old. Uh, they it's just kids. It's basically, yeah, when you come of certain age, I mean, and then, you know, I don't think we do this that much in the States, Bill. No. But it seems here, you like, when you get out of school, um, you go and travel. That's a wonderful thing to think about. Like, it's an exciting thing to think about. Okay, I'm at school. It's before I'm going to start my career. But I'm going to take a year and just go experience the world. They come to Australia because there's this whole um, just – Australia being, you know, so far away, land down under and all these cool things. And we're going to backpack it because you can. Um, Never thinking that somebody has ulterior motives. And I think that's what, what all these people had in common was they were doing just that. They were just trying to experience the world and have some fun and just fell into the wrong hands. Yeah. I think that everybody wants to believe that there's, there's nothing to worry about. And it doesn't happen until you look back on the situation sometimes and realize that something else was going on while you weren't even aware. Like you said, there wasn't any, there weren't any murders going on during the investigation, but you know, nobody knew there were a bunch of murders going on during the, during during the murder spree. Yeah. So what was, what was the time frame from his considering like from when he first committed the murder, the first murder to when he was caught? So the first one was actually the one we were just talking about. That was about 1989. And then, um, but they were only found towards the end. I think that's a bit more of the confusion now talking to you is uh, when um, the murders occurred and when the bodies were found. So um, these uh, two, Deborah and James, were, uh, they they went missing in 1989. So out of the seven, that was the first people chronologically to go missing. And then... Nineteen eighty was a lot. bad year. <laughs> so many bad things happened that year. And uh, Dodgers won a World Series. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but I think I think it was some. Was it Simone who was next? Yes, she was. Simone was a also a German girl who traveled, and her mother was coming to join her for a little bit from Germany. And they had arranged to meet at Melbourne Airport, and Simone didn't show up again. We. In nine, in the early nineties, where do you start to look? You don't know where she stayed before, uh, exactly what her route was that she took, who her friends were. Yeah, because she was solo. She went solo. The she whole was solo. Yeah. She was the only one that was solo. Um, yeah, it's not like you have Google tracking you like you do today. <laughs> Or f- uh, f- social media that you can spot a photo with something in the background. Oh, she must have been at this cafe or something. It's just, it's, it was extremely hard to to find them. Then it was Anya and Gabor. Gabor. So they were found in 1993. 
What actually brought the investigators to his front door? So they had a, a task force because the um, after the first discovery of Caroline and um, and Joanne and, and Joanne's bones in Belangla, there was a, a local man who uh, he lives in um, Bandanoon. Uh, he he went into the forest. He was quite taken by this case, and he he just thought, well, if there are bodies of two travelers, and um, there were reports of missing backpackers in the area. There were many reports of missing backpackers. So the area was sort of, it was a mystery. I spoke to a lot of local people who lived here in the time, at the time. So they were aware of the missing persons cases from the late 80s to the early 90s. They were aware, oh, another two backpackers gone missing. So, uh, so it, it, it didn't come out of the blue. It was just missing persons. And it was a mystery. No one paid too much attention to and it. The law enforcement was just, oh, we got other things to worry about. Yeah, so they, they did what they could. But as I say, with no leads, with nothing, how do you even find them? So they, they were never found. Then these uh, two skeletal remains were found, and all the skeletal remains of two people were found. And the local man just went rummaging in the woods looking for more. And I think, uh, so Bruce found... Yeah, Bruce Pryor. Bruce Pryor, he found, uh, he found Deborah and James. So the first couple. So he, uh, he found more remains. And then police looked at him. Mm. See, and the thing to note, too, just, just as an aside, is that James, like Gabor, also had his spine severed. So that just goes back to Malat's, um, how he would incapacitate the stronger victims. He would literally sever their spine. And did he have military training, or like, how did he know how to do that? Or was that just something that you probably picked up living on a lawless? Yeah. Yeah, he wasn't yeah. military. He wasn't military or anything like that. No, no, he wasn't military. He was just a serial killer. <laughs> He's probably experimenting. Can I do this? Oh, there we go. Training on the job. <laughs> Learning on the job. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so because um, there aren't that many gun clubs in Australia as they probably you would uh-huh. find in the States, so the police went to the local shooting range because of all the shell casings they found and the, uh, the bullet holes in the victims' skulls. Uh, and they tried to find the, – the, they went on a trail to look for the weapon. And that's how they came across, it was in one of the Milat brothers. And then the rabbit trail just took them into the whole Milat clan and trying to figure out for a long time, well, who did it? For a while, they did actually think it was uh, Paul Miller. And, um, and that was um, Richard. Richard. So, so, um, so, so let's, let's go back to this Paul Miller character. Uh, so why does he have an alias? I think he said it was to avoid uh, traffic tickets or what was Yeah, he was trying to yet? just dodge. He was trying to dodge um, some sort of, it was, I thought it was um, not alimony, but he was trying oh, it was. to. Yeah, it was. It was. It was alimony? Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? Well, you know, it just <laughs> on that scene, it's anytime there was something going on, anything that was, you know, not just murder, but just Malat name would always come up to police officers when certain things would go down. A robbery, it's, it was just almost like, well, the Malats are known. They're on the radar, but they still didn't put two and two together with any of the, any of the murders, you know, the backpackers. They didn't put that. And then what sort of brought that was when they finally figured out that a Malat was actually working on the roads during the times that these bodies, that, you know, that these bodies must have died when they started actually doing a timeline. And that's how they linked it to Ivan because he was the only one 
who was working um, for the road system. And interestingly enough, everyone who knew the family said that Ivan was the least likely one. Probably everyone because he's the most handsomest. No, um, yeah. <laughs> literally, like... <laughs> well, I mean, you, like you said before, I mean, we, we talked about it earlier. I mean, you do have to have a sort of a bit of charisma to to be able to con somebody into your vehicle. I don't care. Like if Bundy syndrome. <laughs> it, I mean, it's so straight Bundy. This is this mm. is definitely Bundy esque, but um, you definitely have to have that sort of aura about yourself that and confidence that you're going to be able to one pull it off and. Yeah. to not give away your ulterior motive like you mentioned before. Yeah, and I suppose because he got away with it so many times, that built his confidence too. Yeah, because he could have probably been getting away with it for years before he actually Decades. came on the radar. So that it was really, they were really actually investigating the family. They had a feeling it was one of the brothers. And that started, that seed was planted because of the Paul Miller um, and because they're all in that same area. Like like going back to Borel, um, the engineering, um, the engineering company in the uh, Southern Highlands. Two of the brothers worked there. One of them was Richard, who who went under the name Paul Miller. He had two IDs: one Richard Malat, one Paul Miller. And it, they just kept going back to the Malats, yeah, Sonia. And that's yeah. when they found out that oh shoot, Ivan was working on the roads. Let's and, and let's question him. And they also yeah they searched the Milat properties because they had a couple of properties around the area. Yeah, the brother and like the brothers. Some, yeah, some brothers would buy something together. And so they found some evidence, but could never definitively link it. But then, yeah, the, the, the backpacks found at Ivan's house um, in a morning raid is that's, that's what got him in the end. Unfortunately, we have run out of time this week. But I would like to invite you guys back for part two and the conclusion to the Backpack Killer next Friday on Who Killed. And thank you so much to Noel and Sonia from the Evidence Locker podcast for joining me this week. It is really cool that they were able to join me from down under. And with the technology that we have, it's pretty amazing that we are able to do such things. So, as a reminder, I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday. I'm going to be mixing in some of my Passion Case episodes on the Who Killed feed. And I guess I would say, for the second year in a row, I will be representing Who Killed and Who Killed Amy Mahalovic, as well as my Passion Case on Podcast Row at CrimeCon 2020 in Orlando. I'm not sure exactly what's going on with the situation there, so... If you want to buy a ticket and you would like to save, you can use my promo code AMY2020. The new dates are October 30th through November 1st. So if you enjoy these podcasts that I produce, you can help support independent journalism by clicking on the donate button on the left-hand side of slowburnmedia.com. That is slow minus the W. You can also contribute to the show via the Venmo app with my username at bill Huffman. Dash three, or via PayPal with my email address. I will also provide a link in the show notes. And every contribution does help keep these slow burn podcasts running. You can also help support the show by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you get your favorite shows. Those five stars do help keep the important cases that I cover in the spotlight. 
So anybody who's got any information about any of the cases that I've covered that are unsolved, please contact either Crime Stoppers or the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. If you'd like to stay up to date on the cases I have covered, as well as the new shows that I have in the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. Thank you guys again so much for listening, and until next time, please be healthy and stay safe. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly. And our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.